For nearly 500 years, the modern reference Bible has been the only option most people have ever known. What if we said that's not good enough? What if we created a new category? The Reader's Bible. This is the Bible Reset Podcast, brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. I'm Alex Goodwin, joined by my colleagues Paul Caminiti and Glenn Powell, as well as our guest Chris Smith. You may not know Chris, but if you have one of our Immersed Bibles, you've actually directly interacted with his work. Chris's fingerprints are all over the design and the content and even the philosophy behind Immerse. In some of our previous episodes, we've talked about the deficiencies of the modern Bible and how it makes reading difficult, how it hides the natural structure of books and often misleads the reader. Chris is a longtime friend of ours, and he's been a key part in our work of pioneering the new category of readers' Bibles. Today, Paul and I are going to interview Chris and Glenn and ask them to unpack the story of their work 15 years ago to create the books of the Bible, which was kind of version 1.0 of the concept, which led to the creation of Immerse. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you guys again. Chris, really, it is an honor to have you on the show. And in this growing movement to reset the Bible, to change the way the world reads the Bible, you've been on the ground floor and you've been one of the key contributors. So thank you. We uh, usually start uh, when we're interviewing a guest by asking them about their personal Bible journey. And we'd love for you to share that with us. How uh, was it that you got hooked on the Bible? Okay. Well, I'm actually a lifelong uh, reader and before that, hearer of the Bible, starting with when my parents would read the Bible to us as kids at bedtime. So really, the Bible had me at hello, as they say. Um, But let me tell you, um, in terms of being hooked on the Bible or relating to the Bible, how I came to recognize a new answer to a question that we and I worked together agreed was crucial, and that is, what is the Bible? And what are we supposed to do with it? And I think of three experiences in particular that set me on a path to that new answer. Uh, When I was in college, I was uh, a literature major. At the same time, I was in the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and they did what they call manuscript studies, where they um, take a whole book of the Bible, um, put it in manuscript form, no chapters, no verses, just like something you'd read in a book. And I connected the dots, and I said, you know, now that I see the Bible in this form, I realize that it's just like the literature that I've been studying in my courses. It's a collection of stories and songs and poems and dreams and letters, and I realized that the best thing to do with those was to read them. So that was one very formative experience. Flash forward several years, and um, I was the pastor of a church in Williamstown, Massachusetts, right next to Williams College. And they, the students in the InterVarsity chapter there, many of them came to the church. And at one point, they lost their InterVarsity staff worker. There was no replacement coming imminently. And they asked me if I would help them by leading some of the Bible studies. I thought, this is great. You know, these are college kids. They're open to new approaches. I could really do this any way I wanted. So how am I going to do that? all right, I'll lead studies on whole books, but before we do that, we should ask certain questions. 
for example, what are the circumstances and occasion of the writing of this book? What's the literary genre? What's the literary structure? And what's the thematic development? And just at this time, and to this day, I can't remember how, I came across the book by Mortimer Adler called How to Read a Book. And he said, before you read a book, um, your goal is to discover the answer to four questions. Why was this book written? What kind of writing is it? How is it put together on its own terms? And what are the strong ideas that run all the way through it? I said, hmm. you know what? Those are the same four questions. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Read the book. So we had great Bible studies based on starting with manuscript form. Um, interestingly, at the time, this is the, uh, the 90s. I'm not ashamed to admit. Um, back in the days when you had to load up computer programs with floppy disks, uh, I think it was Zondervan had a program called Mac Bible for Macintosh computers. And I loaded up the 15 floppy disks on my computer very excitedly and discovered that you could turn off the chapter and verse numbers. So I saved, I think I began with the book of Colossians. I emailed it to 20 college students and said, just read this and look for the answers to these questions. And it was such a dynamic study. I said, we should do this all the time. <laughs> so that was another formative experience that got me hooked on the Bible, even though I'd known it all my life. It's getting hooked on in a new way. And the third experience I'd like to relate, um, I was invited to teach um, courses at the Regent College Summer School. And um, one of them I decided to teach on this approach to the Bible, and it enabled me to pull together all of my thinking and research and practice on it. And I called the course Smoke and Signals, kind of a play and idea of smoke signals. Smoke and Signals, Exploring the Bible's Inherent Designs. And the idea is that when you open a Bible, you get a lot of smoke blowing in your eyes, um, keeping you from seeing what's really there. But at the same time, there are signals in the Bible, and I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk about those um, in a minute, that indicate what's going on. I taught the course, and um, the students were telling you know, their friends in the hallways and the professors they had during the year what was going on. There's a bit of a buzz, and I gave a public lecture on the topic, and people got very excited. And um, some of the um, faculty and, and administration at the school said, "You know, you've got to write this up as a book. We need this yesterday. We know some people who can get it published for you." They very excitedly wrote it up as a book, send them the manuscript, and uh, they just couldn't find a publisher for it. And so I said, "What do we do?" And uh, my late wife Priscilla said to me. Uh, God knows our address. If God wants to do anything with this, he'll know where to find it, uh, where to find us. Just put it out on the internet. Uh, so I did. And um, I'll leave the story there because that's kind of the answer to the first question, how to get hooked on the Bible. But I think it, it leads into some things that, that you guys want to ask about as well. Chris, before we leave this whole idea of, of you and the Bible, uh, at some point, you decided to make a career of, of that. You became a Bible scholar. Just tell us very quickly about your, your academic background. All right. Um, I um, have a degree in English and American literature and language from Harvard. And of course, the, the question is, what do you do with an English major? And the joke answer is teach English. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but actually, it gives you a very good foundation 
And I could see immediately uh, once I'd made these connections that it was going to be great for preaching. Um, I felt a call to the ministry to at least, you know, to make serving the people of God my life's work. Um, and it seemed the place to begin was in a local church. But I recognized that um, this training was excellent for understanding the Bible and teaching it to people. Um, so I went to seminary, Gordon-Conwell Seminary, to prepare to enter the ministry. Um, and uh, I won't take the time to tell the story, but the door did not open for me to go and serve a local church. Instead, it opened for me uh, to do a doctorate at uh, Boston College uh, in a joint program with Andover Newton Theological School. So this was um, interdisciplinary and confessional, taught from the standpoint of belief. And um, so I did that in the history of Christian life and thought and Bible, because it was interdisciplinary. <laughs> the plan initially was still to um, serve in local churches, and yet I had the opportunity to teach adjunct courses, um, publish articles in journals, and ultimately I was still pastoring a church when I, uh, don't want to jump ahead to the next part of the story, but when I met up with mm -hmm. uh, Glenn and, and so forth. So this is coming out of the life of the people of God, and yet also coming out of a commitment to you know, understand the Word of God using the best scholarly resources available. And hmm. um, now I've moved into full-time, it, it's freelance work, but it's full-time work, uh, working with different groups that are trying to bring the Word of God to the people of God in the way they can understand. So, so Glenn, you know, Chris has just talked about his his background and his discovery almost of of the Bible as literature. So can you talk about how the two of you met? So I was the publisher of the best-selling English language Bible in the world, and I was seeing sales of Bibles grow exponentially at our nonprofit publishing company. And I thought, this is great. What could be better? And then I heard George Barna speak once about how Bibles are ubiquitous across our land, but there is a connection problem. People have Bibles, but don't read them. They don't know them. And they're not living their lives by what they discover from the wisdom of the scriptures. And I thought, this is no good. I don't want to get to the end of my time as a publisher and discover that I've sold a lot of Bibles, but that people aren't reading them, aren't engaging them. And so we started experimenting. I didn't, I didn't have the knowledge to know what we were doing, but we knew we had to do something. So we did. We just started experimenting with the text. We thought, you know, there's lots of reasons maybe why people aren't reading the Bible, but we looked at this format of the modern reference Bible and said, this is surely not an aid to reading the way we have formatted this text. So we started taking stuff out. We kind of asked the question, what's sacred, what isn't? And we were experimenting with things. So I was at a church teaching a summer class with my friends, Jim and Judy Oricker, and we had formatted the stories of King David into a single book, part of this series we did called People of the Book. There were no chapters, no verses. We didn't know anything about literary structures, so we just kind of read the text and said, yeah, this kind of feels like a chapter break. Let's put a chapter break there. Kind of developed the whole thing into 10 chapters. And I was leading that study, kind of a book club, really, over the summer. And Judy Oricker, a friend here in Colorado Springs, said, you know, we have a friend, Chris Smith, who is doing the work that you're trying to do. And 
I don't think she used these words, but the implication was he actually knows what he's doing. Right. So she gives <laughs> me that she gives me this link to his book that he had published on the internet. And I looked that up and I can still remember reading this material and saying, this is exactly what we've needed. We've been struggling in the direction of something like this, not really knowing how to do it well with real integrity for what the scriptures inherently are. But Chris has done this work. So we reached out to Chris and from that point on, it was a different ballgame altogether. Suddenly we were not just taking things out of the Bible so that it was easier to read. We were discovering with Chris's help what the Bible actually was, book by book. And so then from that point on, we're off and running. Glenn, you're a Bible publisher with an appetite to try new things, and now you're paired with a scholar who has a vision for an alternative version for the Bible. Uh, tell us more about how you met up and how the partnership developed around this vision. Yeah, so when I reached out to Chris and uh, we started talking and I became convinced we had to bring him on as a consultant. So we started a group at the nonprofit called the Bible Design Group. And this was a group of the editors who had reported to me in our other product development for Bible resources and some other folks um, on our team. And Chris came and we began what turned into a four-year journey developing what this new Bible would be in detail. So all the issues that, that Chris will talk about, the things that we had to think about that were part of the traditional Bible format, and especially in its modern form with these additional additives of all the numbers, we began to look at the Bible without all those things. And, you know, Chris helped us discover it's not just taking out chapter and verse numbers. There's issues all across the structure of the Bible. As he says, the Bible is a collection of different kinds of writings. So why why is it in the order that it is? And um, what are the what is the structure within books? And in fact, some of the books have been separated um, within a single book, and so they can be put back together. So we had Chris out, and uh, he did an, a kind of an opening address to this group, and kind of launched for us what the agenda would be for this multi-year project to design a Bible that actually invites people into the real Bible. Yeah, I love that. So you're you're kind of a little bit starting with like a blank canvas. A blank canvas in some ways, right? Like you kind of went through this process of, all right, what's sacred, what's not, what can we play around with for lack of a better word and what needs to stay the same? Obviously no text uh, taken away or added or anything like that, but you guys discovered that there were a lot of design decisions that you could make for uh, maximal readability and you know, things that would display the text more authentically, more naturally, those sorts of things. So what were kind of your guiding principles or guide rails um, or your priorities even in, in designing these new editions? As you pointed out, the goal isn't just to take things out. Because if you take out the chapters and the verses and the section headings, all the other um, cues that people are used to um, telling them how to navigate through the Bible, without those, you know, isn't the only option just to cast the readers adrift on a sea of unorganized type? And the answer is no, because not only is there smoke, there's signals. And let me just use one book as an example. Um, there are what I would call natural literary features, literary signals in every book of the Bible. We have to appreciate that 
all the books of the Bible were created at a time when there wasn't publishing as we know it today. Um, you couldn't put in, you know, little graphics and things that say chapter one and so forth. So you had to do all this within the text of the book. And that's all there for us. So let's think about the book as, of, of Matthew just as an example. If you read it um, on its own terms, one thing you notice is that it goes back and forth between narrative, which is stories, and, and discourse, which is speeches. Uh, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, everyone recognizes as a major unit within Matthew, even though it's divided into three different chapters. Um, people might also be familiar with what's called the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus answers the question of the disciples, what will be the signs of your coming in the end? But those are just two of five long sermons or speeches that Jesus gives in the book. And in between, there's stories. And if you look at those discourses or speeches, you notice that at the beginning of each one, Matthew says, the disciples came to Jesus, or the disciples gathered to Jesus and asked him a question. And each one ends with Matthew saying, after Jesus had finished saying these things, he went on to do such and such. And the last one ends, after Jesus had finished saying all these things. There's hmm. a lot of intentionality there. This isn't just the narrator saying, let's get back to the story. <laughs> these are signals. And if you look at the narrative sections that precede each discourse, you recognize that these episodes, these stories, illustrate a theme that the discourse then elaborates. For example, in the second section of the book, you see Jesus healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing the lepers. And then uh, in the discourse, he says to his disciples, I'm going to send you out to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and here's how you need to do that. So these are really pairs, narrative discourse pairs that share a theme. Uh, there's a genealogy at the beginning and the story of Jesus' um, death and resurrection at the end. But these five narrative discourse pairs are the core of the book. And it's no accident that there's five of them. Uh, Matthew is a Jew writing for Jews and five books. You know, what does that say to you? <laughs> yeah, He's portraying Jesus as the new Moses. But you're not going to see any of this if you see Matthew as a book that has 28 chapters. That just flattens and homogenizes the material. And you're reading, you know, discourses in pieces. Um, you, you don't see how the stories are all on the same theme. So to me, it's a very clear illustration of how not only do you have to take out the smoke, but you have to recognize the signals. And then our goal was how would we display and highlight uh, these signals to readers in the edition? And that was, um, those were the, the practical challenges that, that we faced. Yeah, let me just jump, let me just jump in there and say, you know, as a publisher, before we met Chris, we knew about smoke. And we were, we <laughs> hmm. were trying to eliminate smoke, but we didn't know about signals. And so that's where we were learning. Yeah. Yeah. And Chris, it would be fair to say, right, that the first people receiving these obviously would have been listening and would have been used to listening to long uh, passages read or whatever and be kind of attentive listeners, right? So their ears would perk up when they hear this phrase being used over and over again as kind of, oh, this is a transition point. Is that accurate oh, to say? Absolutely. Um, really, every, every book of the Bible was composed orally to be delivered orally. Yeah. At a time when writing was simply seen as a way of conveying speech at a distance. Right. And so the Bible is full of the conventions of 
oral literature, including these repeated phrases. So when I taught this course, I called them um, structurally significant recurring phrases. I abbreviated that SSRP, and the student said, oh, that sounds like an investment vehicle. Hmm. <laughs> but yeah, there's really... Um, most books of the Bible have these recurring phrases. And as you say, Alex, listeners' ears would perk up and say, okay, we're finishing this section, we're going into a new one. But in many cases, they come in the middle of chapters. So, well, i got to keep reading to the end of the chapter, you know? Mm. So you miss the sense of closure and, and finality and coherence. So then what do we do with it? One, one thing we did was use white space. It's non-intrusive. Um, and we actually used white space of different sizes to correspond with the different size units in the book. So in between narrative episodes, in between stories, we might have one line. In between the uh, narrative and the discourse in a given block, we might have two lines. And then in between narrative discourse blocks and the next one, we might use three lines. And the reader might not be conscious of this, but subconsciously it tells you, okay, it's a break, but it's a small break. Oh, now this one's a bigger break. Uh, without, you know, putting in a heading, you know, um, next discourse begins. Yeah. So what, what Chris's work compels a publisher to do is to think about the design of Bibles in a, at a level that they never have before. So, you know, we were a nonprofit publisher. We used to try to cram as much text on a page as we could to save money on the page count. You're always looking for a double column because it, it, there's less white space. So poetry is not showing itself as poetry, and it's all the lines are broken up into little fragments. And now, once you make the transition mentally to say, our job is to present the Bible as it actually is, as a as a welcome invitation to good reading, then you you look at the design of the page very differently. Um, obviously, large readable type with good spacing between lines, between letters on the line. You're not cramming things together good margins, but also these elements that Chris is teaching us about. We're learning about the structure of every book of the Bible, kind of book by book, and we're we're giving it right to our designers saying, you have to design us a new kind of Bible. This is not being done these days, and people need to see what's really there, and your design solutions will help readers have an immensely better Bible experience. So you guys did a huge task with finding these these literary breaks, and it was a massive project as you go through every book of the Bible. You guys also did some creative work in the area of the order of the books of the Bible, too, and we've talked about that on other shows, and mm -hmm. we'll get into that in more detail, but kind of at a high level, talk to us about it, you know, at what point you decided that you were going to mess with the structure and really kind of mess people up who had maybe as uh, kids growing up in church learned the books of the Bible. Right. And I think it begins not just with the order of the books, but the, um, the borders of the books, because um, there are several longer works in the Bible that were divided into parts simply because scrolls of the time couldn't accommodate a work that long. So, for example, um, the, the books that we know as First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, that's one long work. 
In Hebrew, it fit on two scrolls. When it was translated to Greek, it expanded and had to go on four scrolls. But that's why we have four books instead of one, simply the publishing technology. Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah is a single work. Uh, Luke-Acts is a single work. Um, so you had limitations of publication technology that divided them into pieces, and then other considerations um, changed the order. So Luke and Acts, one volume, one, one book in two volumes. Um, but people said, hey, Gospels are the life of Jesus. You know, don't get me wrong. Jesus is the center and climax of the whole Bible. It's all about Jesus. So I understand why people put the Gospels together. But they separated out Acts to put them together, and they put John in between Luke and Acts. <laughs> you know, Luke is still unhappy that that happened to his two-volume right, yeah. work. <laughs> Wedged it in there, yeah. Um, so there's that traditional element of um, putting the stories of Jesus together. I totally get why that was done. Um, and then the same principle was followed. Let's put all the letters together, uh, not realizing that there are there are four different streams in the New Testament four distinct constituencies that are being addressed. You have Jews, you have Greeks, you have Romans, you have um, kind of the, what they call the Johannine literature, John, the letters of John, um, which is addressing a more cosmopolitan um, group. And so we thought, well, why don't we just put those together? And one thing that was very helpful was research, um, research that we did that showed that the books of the Bible were not in a fixed order until the advent of printing in the early 1500s. So for three quarters of the, um, the Bible's life, I say the full Bible, Old and New Testaments, three quarters of its life, the books were not in a fixed order. Um, different orders for different reasons, depending on what purpose they were serving. Um, some very large number of uh, orders is attested, I've forgotten the exact number, but I think it's something like 80 different orders of the Old Testament that people mm. are aware of. So there was nothing sacred here. You know, it's not as if, you know, the current book order was good enough for St. Paul, it's good enough for me. <laughs> um, it's, it's almost a novelty if you think of the Bible as a, a two-millennium-old book. Um, the fixed book order that we know is relatively, and it's not even constant around the world. Um, hmm. different, different communities have different orders. So we said, you know what, um, there's no reason to keep this fixed if it's a disservice to people. So we put Luke and Acts back together as a single book and paired it with Paul's letters because they worked together. Luke traveled with Paul on his journeys, um, put Matthew with uh, Hebrews and James because those focus on um, the Jewish community and so forth. I think you guys explain all this very well in the immersed material. But somebody had to say, you know, this isn't sacred. Um, book boundaries, mm -hmm. book order is not sacred. Mm -hmm. We're actually bringing the Bible back closer to what it's always been and farther away from what it recently has become. That's where a little, a little uh, knowledge of the history of the development of the Bible, going back to the ancient world in the oral traditions and the oral origins of the Bible, all the way through the different stages, once you learn what has been done with the Bible and how it turned into what we know as the modern reference Bible, it's just liberating. There's a liberation knowing these things are not sacred. They weren't inspired to be this way from the beginning. The humans who were the handlers of Scripture 
were in the position to make decisions about what they were going to do and why. Book order, um, structuring books, separating books, all of these things were decided by people at an earlier stage and not at the very beginning. So there's just freedom that comes to know, well, what are our reasons for doing what we do today? And it's if your goal is to help readers, give readers the most help you possibly can in reading experience, in understanding, in seeing things, then you're free to produce this new form of the Bible. Yeah, which is actually really a return to the older form. Amen. Um, similarly, um, chapters and verses, the chapters were added in 1200. So again, if we simply start with the Old and New Testament and call that the Bible, disregarding the many centuries uh, of the Hebrew Bible before that, for two-thirds of the Bible's history, there were no chapters. Uh, the chapters were added kind of in the high Middle Ages when scholars in different countries were corresponding with each other, writing commentaries. They wanted to be able to refer conveniently to the same sections. And then the verses were added in the 1500s um, during the debates of the Reformation, but they, they, they were used for that, but they were actually introduced so that a concordance to the Greek New Testament could be created. So someone wanted to create, it, it's, the, it's the Renaissance, it's the new learning, it's the return of the humanities. Certainly, knowing the Greek is going to help us understand the Bible. Having a concordance is going to help, but you have to help people find this particular word. So that's why verses were introduced. Um, but then there was kind of like, not, not the perfect storm, but the perfect tornado, <laughs> because it was dropped into the middle of these debates of the Reformation, and people could point to one little text and say, aha, we're right. This It says it here. Um, and it's amazing how quickly the verses spread to all Bibles. Uh, but within 150 years, none other than John Locke himself was saying, we got to take these out. So <laughs> thoughtful people ever since have been saying, this doesn't help. <laughs> Can you guys talk about the process for actually creating these like you've you've given us an overview of your philosophy but what did it look like um actually bringing these into the world we would meet off-site typically uh at a place in your, near your home now alex in the black forest and we would have these meetings chris would come prepared with a certain number of books or a, a certain amount of material and present that to us and then the group would discuss and eventually we would have a vote about the particulars that Chris presented to us and not to be overly dramatic uh, and, and nobody actually had to be martyred. But I, I will say that there not everybody at the nonprofit organization was thrilled about this work. And it just shows you that there's a certain buy-in right, by anybody. The tendency is to trust what you know. And for people who've seen the Bible a particular way their entire life, and then to have somebody come and say, you know, it doesn't have to be like that. It can be like this. And it's very different. Um, we think it's obvious to see how much easier it is to read, how much understanding comes from seeing the internal literary structure of books, seeing the books in an order that puts them together in a coherent way that you can see why these books are put together. That all seems right and good. But when you've known a Bible and you're attached to a particular part of the Bible, you aren't necessarily thrilled about someone messing with your Bible, even though we think of it as unmessing with the Bible that was messed with earlier. 
Um, but that's that's a matter of perspective. And so it did not go without opposition. I didn't spend too much time in the Bible publishing industry, but it, it seems to me like the the innovation level was kind of off the charts for your typical Bible publisher, right? Like nowadays it's, oh, we added a coloring page to it. And so you can color while you read, or we added lines in the margin so you can take a note, you know, take notes or whatever. You're talking about rearranging books, taking out chapters and verses, putting books back together, all this stuff. So I can imagine that for some people, it was a little bit disconcerting. Yeah. And it's not like the sales were bad. It's not like we had to do something radical because sales were so far down. We we have to reinvent the product. The sales were great. I mean, the Bible was selling, right? Bibles sell well all every every year. The The question for us was engagement. It's not good enough to just sell loads and loads of Bibles that people don't actually read. So we were going after a different problem, but I think there was some fear that it would hurt the sales of the Bible to people who knew what they wanted and they wanted the traditional Bible. Yeah. So, so multiple years into this project, you guys have spent forever going book by book. I think it was Uh, about four years, wasn't it? It was 2003 to 2007. Okay. So, you know, Chris will go into a book, he'll investigate it like he, uh, like he outlined, like he did for Matthew, find the literary structures, you guys format them, all this stuff, this huge long process, and you finally published the books of the Bible. Then what happened? I think there were two different levels to the reception. And I got to see the level of what I would call astonishing enthusiasm. And people just loved it. They were um, excited about it. And I've got a collection of of hundreds of um, sort of glowing reviews. Let me just um, share a few of them. Um, One person said, I've been a reader of the Bible all my life, but after reading just a few pages without chapters and verses, I was amazed at what had been missing all these years. This is kind of the language that always came out, amazed. Um, someone said, reading scripture this way flows beautifully. I don't miss the chapter and verse numbers. I like them gone. They got in the way. (laughs) Um, Someone else said, uh, I find myself understanding scripture in a new way, and I feel spiritually refreshed as a result. I learn much more through stories being told. And with this format, I feel the truth of the story come alive for me. And I'll always remember the person who said, um, I knew it was really important to understand Paul. I mean, he wrote half the books of the New Testament. You got to understand Paul, right? He said, I tried really hard. I even took a seminary course on Paul, and I didn't get him. But when I read his letters in the order in which they were likely written, with brief explanations of when and how and why they were written, I got him. I got Paul. <laughs> so this was the kind of uh, input that we were getting. Um, even, even people who said, well, I don't think I would use that because I'm used to chapters and verses would add. But if this works for you, go ahead. You know, so there was no opposition. No one said this is this is problematic. You know, what are you doing to my Bible? Um, and so I'll, I'll admit, I honestly expected this to sweep the planet when we did it, <laughs> especially seeing this kind of feedback. Um, but it hasn't yet. Um, we're still working on that. Uh, but I think the reason it hasn't yet is that people still have this answer in their mind to the question, "What is the Bible, and what are we supposed to do with it?" Um, I I taught a course on the Bible in one of my churches, and I gave a test at the end. And one of the questions on the test was, um, uh, the Bible is most like, A, Bartlett's familiar quotations, B, 
the Reader's Digest Book of Home Repairs, C, the World Book Encyclopedia, or D, the Collected Papers of the American Anti-Slavery Society? So the right answer is D. The Bible is people on a mission with a cause in the world, and it's a collection of their papers, right? Their letters, their stories, their dreams. But we never hear that. We hear the other one, right? It's the manufacturer's uh, manual for the human life. <laughs> or it's precious promises, you know, thoughts to live by. Um, so we just have the wrong picture in our minds of what the Bible is. I think there needs to be a change in the mindset of what the Bible is. And I think the best way to do that is simply to put this in people's hands, hope that they're open to it, and just let them test drive it. You think about it, there's been a 500, nearly 500 year history now with the modern reference Bible. And people have become used to it, not just in their lifetimes, but it goes back over centuries. And we're trying to change that, to change people's perception, as you say, Chris, of what is the Bible and what am I supposed to do with it? And I think we need to be persistent, and and your strategy is the right one. Take it to the people, let them experience it, and they overwhelmingly love it. I mean, there were other reasons, not those reasons, why people were opposed to this uh, to some degree at the beginning. But I think it's it's going to just roll as more and more people experience it, have great Bible experiences, because we know that in large number, we know from Bible research, they're not. People are struggling with the Bible, struggling to read it and understand it, not sure that it's for them today. And I think they need a new Bible experience, and we have to press on with what will be a longer-term cultural change, and I think the persistence will win the day. Chris was in on the feedback loop where all this positive flow was coming back, but as the publisher, <laughs> you uh, you had a different experience, and and not quite so positive. You want to talk about that a little bit and, and how it uh, eventually, I mean, you guys almost went off a cliff, right? Yeah. And, you know, part of it was the specific dynamics of our nonprofit publishing. We were a seller of low-cost outreach Bibles for evangelism. So people wanted to buy a case of Bibles for a dollar a Bible so they could give them away in mass to people. And it the reading was not at the top of their list. They were thinking the Bible is just automatically a good thing in whatever form it is. And if you can hand out lots of them, then evangelism happens and it's all good. And then our research saying, yeah, but people aren't reading these Bibles kind of bumps up against that model. And if we were pumping out Bibles, which we were, low-cost outreach Bibles, um, you know, from that perspective of just rolling the presses and making sales, it looks great, you know, on paper. The deeper story was more troubling, but we weren't really in a good position as a publisher because we weren't selling um, more expensive, more premium type Bibles. So when every time I came to the printer at our organization and said, here's a new Bible format for you, here's, here's the layout, and it was uh, several hundred pages longer because we're, we're showing a single column text, showing the poetry as poetry, there's white space, and it's readable right? All these other values are going into the equation. It worked against the audience expectations that we kind of operated with. So it didn't go well. And that we were allowed to do a first single printing. And we were told that would be its last. <laughs> and, and so we even had a little ceremony where we thought, well, let's take a few of these and, and put them in a box and bury them. 
and maybe in 50 years someone will discover them and this idea can have another go. Um, it was not easy at first, but then um, I don't want to get into all the, the details of the story, but um, there were some changes at the organization. Some new folks came in, uh, including Paul Caminetti from Zondervan, and had a whole new idea about how to introduce this reader's format that we did. Rather than selling them, trying to compete with cheap Bibles, why don't you have whole churches do a Bible reading program together and sell it as a package, as a community experience? Mm -hmm. And that ended up changing the game for us. Now that we have uh, uh, reader's Bibles in the ecosystem, they seem to be established. What's your sense about how the reading Bibles and the reference Bibles can coexist? Personally, I wouldn't say reading versus reference, although I think, you know, those two terms illustrate a distinction. I would really call it a literary Bible rather than a reading Bible. And I know that literary is a dangerous term. You say literary and people's eyes glaze over and they think with some resentment of how they were forced to study literature in school. Um, but reading is also a dangerous term because it suggests that People can use this new kind of Bible if they want to curl up in a chair and read for a while. But for everything else, they need a reference type, and they better not bring any other type to church. <laughs> um, but the kind of Bible we're talking about is excellent not just for reading, but also for studying, preaching, and teaching. And I've actually devoted half a book to trying to demonstrate that. second half of my book, After Chapters and Verses, shows how a Bible in this format, um, I would argue, is better for not just reading, but for studying, preaching, and teaching. So just, um, just let me put that thought out there. Maybe we could say literary Bible or some other term. But in terms of um, coexistence, uh, to be honest, um, I don't have a dream for coexistence <laughs> because the two types of Bibles give different answers to the question, what is the Bible and what are you supposed to do with it? And both answers cannot be correct at the same time. So my dream instead would be for a slow displacement by a literary Bible for most purposes, certainly most devotional purposes, and the reference Bible retaining a niche for legitimate reference purposes, such as the original one of creating a concordance or a Bible dictionary. Um, and as Glenn was saying, this is the kind of change that only takes root over time, but then proves to be lasting. So I think my vision would be, um, let's just get these out there, let's put them in people's hands, let them test drive them, and, let, and even if it says, you know, reading Bible on the cover, they'll begin to discover what I would call off-label uses. You know, mm -hmm. they'll, it turns out that, you know, everyone has one at the Bible study. Well, let's just use that. Let's just use this one tonight. You know, <laughs> hey, this was pretty good. And especially um, younger generations that don't feel limited, that, that like to explore, that like to push boundaries. I think we'll see them moving out from reading into other applications. If I were 22 instead of 62, I would plant a church in which all the preaching was done from the Bible without chapters and verses, all the Bible studies used the format, and we could even make a little joke, you know, chapter and verse free zone. Um, <laughs> but someone's got to do that. Maybe a bunch of people will do that. And then when people see, hey, you know, this works, this is good, <laughs> it'll catch on. Diversify, baby, diversify. Diversify, that's right. Yeah, Okay. <laughs> Yeah, and that reminds me, Chris, we had an episode earlier with Nathan Smith, who teaches Bible in Christian schools, and someone recently said, I've learned more in just the beginning of this class than I have in my entire career. These are high school students. 
my entire career in, in Christian school and in church, yeah. you know, understanding the Bible and, and reading it. So I think, I think our hope is with the younger generations, the ones that the research says is they are walking away from the Bible more than any other group. Yeah. I think they're precisely the ones who can be won over to this approach. They love it as soon as they experience it. And uh, we're looking toward the future. Uh, in, our, in our team meetings, sometimes when we have a meeting where there's some sort of paradigm shift uh, and we're all kind of digesting what we've talked about, uh, we like to go around the room and just offer up a final word if you have anything else to add. So I'll go first, then Paul, Glenn, and we'll end with Chris. Um, and for me, you know, I wasn't involved in any, any of this production. I wasn't at these offsite meetings or anything. But when I came across this, when I met Glenn, and got this version of the Bible that I hadn't seen any seen seen before. Um, and I learned kind of the rationale behind it. It just made all the sense in the world to me. Like at every single turn, you I didn't have any moments where I was thinking, ah, oh, yeah, I, I guess you could interpret it that way. <laughs> you know, when you, when you learn the history and the, learn the um, the development of what became the modern reference Bible, reverse engineering all that just makes all the sense in the world at every single turn. So thank you guys for your work, for persevering through um, kind of organizational pushback and uh, and that sort of thing. And I, I think it's changed the Bible for a lot of people. And my big takeaway is that what we've talked about today is truly a new chapter in the Bible's history. And I hope... No pun it. No pun intended. Yes. <laughs> and I, uh, yeah, thank you. And I pray that there will be a day when we'll read about your courage and going across the grain. You guys were uh, generous in not sharing this, but you've both paid a personal price for the work that you've done in, in multiple ways, and yet you stuck with it. And I'll, I'll never forget. Glenn shared with us once a motto that you guys adopted, not the Bob Marley motto, but <laughs> actually something from Homer's Ulysses where uh, he wrote what he greatly thought he nobly dared. Mm -hmm. And you guys uh, did that. And we thank you. And uh, the Bible reading world thanks you for the work that you've done. Yeah, thank you, Paul. I guess for me, the word is renewal. You know, there's a lot of places within the Bible where the people of God were called to renewal. And sometimes that involved directly rediscovering the word of God. I think of King Josiah and that story and, and uh, the reading of the scriptures with Ezra and the time of Nehemiah and the reconstitution of the people of God after the exile. And so I think that this is a time for Bible renewal. The trending has not been good for some time in terms of Bible reading and engagement and understanding. And I think this is a time where Bible reading, Bible living, Bible engagement can all be renewed. And some people are ready to give up on the Bible. Um, you see statements like that, like, we don't really need it. We just need Jesus, mm -hmm. things like that. And I think. The scriptures are the heart of our story, and this is a potential moment of Bible renewal. And I guess um, the observation I would make, especially in light of our whole conversation here, um, it strikes me that this, this format needed a home. And as Glenn has pointed out, it just didn't fit with the culture or the perceived mission 
of the organization in which it was birthed. Um, but I can see that the Institute really is providing the home that this format needs. And I trust that it's going to grow, you know, strong and healthy. And eventually it'll um, spread its wings and fly. But, um, you know, it's in good hands. And I know other publishers have done it, but it's almost been on the basis of, oh, they're doing that over there. Yeah, we'll do it over here, too. You know, <laughs> whereas this is kind of the ground up vision, um, you know, from the ground up vision. And um, it's the atmosphere is hospitable and supportive and enthusiastic. So I'm, I'm delighted that the format has has found a home and look forward to seeing it you know, growing in that home. And as I said, eventually spreading its wings and and sweeping the planet. Love that. Yeah. Well, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. It's been fun to hear uh, hear all this from your perspective. And, uh, and that's going to do it for our interview today, but thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, we hope, hope this helped that you guys, uh, see that there's an alternative to the modern reference Bible and it's not a gimmick or a fad, but it actually represents a lot of thought and arguably, no, not even arguably a more thoughtful approach to the text. And, uh, so if you don't have a reader's Bible yet, all of the concepts that we discussed today are embedded within the immersed Bible, which we created, uh, with Chris actually. And you can pick up a copy at immersebible.com. If you find this content helpful, we'd love it if you shared it with your friends. All of the podcast providers have an easy way of grabbing a link to, to each episode and sharing it. Or you can go to thebiblereset.com and get shareable links there. So thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys on the next one.